Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to Not Your Average Joe, the podcast that'll make anyone a little less average. I'm your host, Joe Franco, and y'all ain't ready for this episode. So on today's episode, I interview a dear friend of mine. I consider her a big sister, a mentor. Her name is Kelly Colley, and she went from being an archaeologist, digging in the dirt, to being an award-winning filmmaker. Now, this conversation, like most of the conversations here on the podcast, jumps around in various locations, but I think the overall theme of today's topic is being bold enough to step into areas where people don't normally look like you, and how that creates a ripple effect that can create true diversity not just performative diversity. Like, this is how real change will happen. You're gonna want to take notes for this one. Kill the intro, sis. You know she's not your average Joe. Not your average Joe. She's not your average Joe. Welcome. <gasps> Thank you. Kelly. Okay, did. Kelly, I need to give you, like, a, just a beautiful um, introduction you are like my other big sister and we met we've only met in person twice twice three times, <laughs> twice. Three times. there was Two. a comedy show too <gasps> three yes yeah and you know what this is the best thing that's ever come from an ex-boyfriend because <laughs> you through an ex-boyfriend who was friends with your husband so mm-hmm. alas here we are it's almost been six five six seven years i don't even know how long it's been girl we don't count years no more they all stopped uh a while ago they for just me. stopped I, like, they just stopped just like i i adopt prince's philosophy prince <laughs> didn't celebrate birthday i mean he also is a jehovah witness but let's 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 disregard that he had a belief system that if you don't acknowledge it or recognize it then you stay young and i mean look at the man Minus look that he's you. passed on now, but but <laughs> you're still here, so that's yeah. Let's keep it like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have so much to cover today. I want to mm-hmm. make sure that we get to all of this. But the reason why I am so in awe of you is because when we met, you showed me this uh, amazing feature film. Was that mm-hmm. a feature film? Which one? Uh, I'm fine. Thanks for asking. No. Was there roller was... skating? Lalo's no, no, house. No. Child trafficking. Yes. (laughs) Like all over the place. Uh, Yeah, that wasn't a feature film, but I like to call it the shortest feature film ever made because it It, felt like a feature film (laughs) making that thing. Yeah. So if you can just like describe, because I really want people to understand that this conversation is, yes, we're going to talk about like being in the world of filmmaking and mm-hmm. being a director and being a beautiful woman of color who has this like amazing gumption to fight and film features. You filmed a feature during the pandemic, pandemic. with zero bu- budget, with zero a dollars. So check, girl. <laughs> yeah. So like, you're not an average person. So this is why I want to have this conversation, but I want to mm-hmm. go to the backstory of how it all began because you did not know you would fall into filmmaking storytelling and your career was in archaeology like what yeah i was an archaeologist first um so i went to howard university for undergrad and it was there that i discovered archaeology i mean i always had been into archaeology um indiana jones really inspired me all around um it first inspired me to get into into archaeology and then it also inspired me into filmmaking later but um yeah i didn't realize you could be an archaeologist until i got to howard and i saw that they had an anthropology department where you learn um linguistics cultural anthropology forensic anthropology and uh archaeology and i focused you had to learn them all but i focused in archaeology and lived in Central American rainforest for months and tent excavating Mayan culture. Also did like US um, 
history and excavations on Buffalo soldiers and, and worked as an archaeologist in Washington, D.C., surveying. That, that wasn't fun archaeology because you had to, when they were building a condo, they had to hire an archaeological firm. We had to go out because, you know, the land is historic and all that. And we had to survey to make sure there were no like burial grounds or anything like that, but in the snow. So like a whole life, a whole career. And I want to touch on the fact that anytime I've ever heard of friends or, you know, acquaintances going into archaeology, that is not a, a major in college that people think you would ever have a, a career out of college. It's almost no. like studying art or something like that. Like that's not a path that people go into thinking that they will make money. And that means that less people of color go into that path because most of the minorities on this earth are trying to make as much money as possible to close the wealth gap. So this is why Mm -hmm. when you zoom out and you look at these professions of archaeologists, you don't see many people of color, you don't see minorities, Mm -hmm. and you were one of the few. Not only are you a woman, but you're a woman of color. So talk about that. Like, were you nervous even going into that major? Or did you think of it as an afterthought? It's very much an afterthought. I didn't know that um, people of color weren't in the field because uh, you know I went to historically black college and university and so it wasn't until I had to present my findings at the SAAs which is the Society of American Archaeology and it um, it's the largest convention of archaeologists in the United States and so they have things called poster sessions and so when you've done the research for however long on whatever topic you're doing you come and you present these poster sessions and this is whole it's usually like at a convention center in another state somewhere and um and you do your presentation girl we were the only black folks in there only and i was like do you know how many posters there were i was like how is it but check this the topics had all kind of people of color like cultures of color but the people presenting it did not represent that culture. And it's, it's like something we softly talked about before, how I am definitely not one to say like, um, oh yeah, you know, white folks shouldn't be doing archeology span and stuff. No, absolutely. Because I feel like they need, everyone needs to understand each other in order to have like empathy with one another. Um, but, we have to involve and be inclusive because there's things that we can overlook from other cultures and misinterpret and print in history books and say it for fact when if you would have just had somebody from that lineage there doing the excavations with you, you might have had a more accurate interpretation of what you found. Just like the knitting needle story that like the, I need you to share. The knitting needle story. Um, and I hope I'm saying it as accurately as possible. But one of my other friends who um, was a person of color from Egypt who studied archaeology at Oxford, she was telling the story how um, when they were doing an excavation, I don't know if she was on this one, but it's a story from one in Egypt. And she said that there were like very few women in power positions on the dig. And they did have one man who was from Egypt with them as they were surveying what they just found and they found these needles. And so apparently the lead archeologist was trying to interpret and the lead archeologist wasn't necessarily from Egypt, um, but they were trying, they were interpreting it as um, like religious items in this tomb and the, all this stuff. And then the Egyptian man looked at it, he said, these actually look like the knitting needles that my wife uses for <laughs> So they confirmed it. And see, if they didn't have a, a local who has a voice, who's in a position to have a voice to give an opinion on that dig and check it, if they had even had some women <laughs> on that dig, they probably might've come to that conclusion faster, but thank God, you know, that man's wife knits. So he was able to recognize those things, but that's why diversity is important. So whether or not that story is exactly accurate, what you know, but 
play by play, but the essence of it was they were misinterpreting these needles. <laughs> and there was a man there to say, my wife knits and this, this isn't a religious item. This is used for knitting. And so we need to be inclusive because we can get a more accurate depiction of what our past is and how we're not so different from it, you know? And that brings me to the next question, which is looking at archaeology. Like, no one talks about archaeology. Literally, that mm-hmm. is not something people talk about. No. But when we spoke about it, I was in love with everything you were saying because a lot of what I value and a lot of, like, the things that I naturally gravitate towards, whether that's family history, I'm the historian in my family. I'm mm-hmm. the one who asks all of the questions. I filmed my grandfather asking him questions about everything. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's so important to know the history and to preserve the history because that that gives you context. And when you have context, you know your place in the world. Exactly. And when you think about archaeology, that's like humanity's context. Like mm-hmm. That is, and you're in the dirt. So in the dirt. can you talk about what, what that feels like to be really d- digging in the dirt, finding these ancient remains of like mm-hmm. our ancestors mm-hmm. and, and how that connects to what you do now. So, you know, I have a saying that um, our history begins in the dirt and people don't understand the importance of archaeology. Um, people see it as just like, you know, Indiana Jones or Laura Croft or just these people running around trying to find relics to give to the British Museum, which is also an issue. Um, (laughs) We'll talk about that some other time. But um, we, when we don't realize that the absence of having diversity in a field like archaeology impacts the way all of us see each other, it's, it's frightening to me. And so like we have like even programs like at Howard, um, archeology span is no longer a major. It's not supported. Uh, so I got my degree years before they cut funding. And this is just, it's mind blowing to me. Um, and it's happening all around HBCUs. I mean, even at PWIs, which we call predominantly white institutions, um, they have funding, but it's not, I guess, for lack of a better term, advertised to students of color per se. You know, some of the, uh, I know UCLA is doing its best to staff more archaeological, um, you know, archaeologists as um, faculty there that are of color. Um, One of my friends from Howard uh, who continued on in archaeology is an underwater archaeologist and a National Geographic explorer now. Um, He teaches there, so they're making an effort. But the the issue is, is that it's not seen as something that we would partake in, especially like digging in the dirt. Like what... (laughs) What's I think it's sexy, quite frankly. I love getting I love getting dirty. I love spiders. I love all that stuff. So it doesn't scare me, but um, it could deter a lot of folks. But the, it's very important that we start in the dirt because whoever is excavating these things is the one who is interpreting your history, our history, because everybody's culture impacts everybody else's culture. So. We need to care about how we interpret every single site and every single thing that we find because it impacts our our biases, <laughs> our implicit biases, our external biases, like whatever it is that how we see each other. Um, if we were to see African culture as a powerful, dynamic kingdoms, which they were, but that's not taught. Why? Because it wasn't... Africans who were in the dirt first. I mean, actually, historically, they may have been excavating, but on record <laughs> in the books, right? You know, it's like the person who controls the narrative has yeah. the final say. But when you're a kid and you're reading history books, you're not taught to discern what you're reading in your history no. books with that level of sophistication. No. One of my college professors, he was super mean, but one of the best professors ever. They usually are like that. You just I had to throw that the in there. You're like super yeah, mean, yeah. but. 
he was like a no nonsense kind of a guy. Yeah. The first thing he said, he was like, know your sources. And that's yeah. always in the back of my mind. It's like when you're reading anything, whether it's a history book, an article, or even like whatever, a letter, it's like, know who wrote that and what their motives were and who they are, how they, they were are. raised, what they're looking for. And when you have a group of white men mm -hmm. writing history books, you be become a racist society, which is literally how race became an issue because white men were writing in history books that they were the superior race and everybody else was lesser than. And I'm assuming that, that has a lot to do with archeology span where it's like, if you had a diverse group of people digging up remains, writing the books, telling the stories, it would be a more wholesome, well-rounded, equal thing because scientifically speaking, it is proven that there is no genetic difference between- No, but white, you just black, let- brown, nothing. You just let one group with an agenda of superiority take over and do those excavations. I mean, they, they excavated skulls of Africans and said, oh, look how small the skull is, which indicates that their brains are smaller. So they are therefore inferior and should be um, taken care of in a way like a baby and put into the servitude um, situations, uh, i.e. slavery. So there, it's if you just let anyone go out and excavate without any checks and balances, um, their agenda can easily be seeped in and and believed throughout history and in right, develop self-hate in certain cultures certain right cultures and it everywhere. goes back to like the power is in one pool most of the time but now we're changing that we're blurring the lines a little bit and like yeah. what's super fascinating about what you have done and will continue to do in your life is like whether we're talking about archaeology or filmmaking mm -hmm. it's honestly the same thread which is you are in fields where they are not it's not common to have somebody who looks like you and when you get there it's not even like you thought about it but when you get to those fields you're like oh damn like I'm the only one who's like me and then you realize the responsibility mm -hmm. and also like the you know, we were joking, like, it's community service to tell these stories. Like, you need to tell these stories. You need yeah. to, to share that this is possible to be a minority female archaeologist and now filmmaker. Because if you don't tell these stories, other girls who look like us will not know it's possible. They won't even think of it. Right, right. 100%. It, it like, I somehow i didn't like see myself in indiana jones but for, for some reason i didn't like think it wasn't possible but there's i've been talking to other people um other archaeology friends and they're like i didn't look at indiana jones and think i could be you know <laughs> they just stumbled on it another way so in in film it's very important to me to um start putting more representation on screen and these types of um, storytelling because it stimulates the idea of adventure and fascination. And I have to say that it is adventurous sometimes. Sometimes archeology span is very dull. Um, like when I was working um, for the firm in DC and we had to like just survey land to make sure nothing was there. Um, but you still had hope that something was there. Like, <laughs> you're like, maybe my unit has something. And, but when we, when we were in the rainforest, um, living there for months and you wake up and like huntsman spiders and tarantulas are around you, you knocking them off your tent before you crawl out and like spider monkeys are throwing stuff at you as you're hiking into your, your unit and you're digging five feet deep into your unit and you hit a, a, a nest of, Fire ants and those um, rainforest fire ants are very different than any fire ant you know. <laughs> you better get out that unit fast. <laughs> then you guys sit there and watch your unit fill with all these ants everywhere. It looks like static. And then you got to sit there for like an hour until they disperse. And like, that's adventure to me. Like, I, I know people think I'm crazy, but there's other crazy kids out there. There's other crazy young girls out there who would love that and doesn't even know it's there. And that's why it's important that I feel film can help get that interest back 
to be able to make sure that programs um, around the nation, around the world are funded in archaeology and, and help support marginalized uh, people who come from marginalized communities to be able to study and attend. I mean, like, again, you know, Howard University, I just love so much because they, they practice what they preach. So like something that you're going to learn, I think everyone should go to HBCU. I know that there's a lot of debate about that. Like, you know, as, as black folks, we'd be like, we want our sanctuary. We don't want everybody, you know, and I get that side, but there's also a side that I'm like, I really need everybody to understand this, you know, so that we can all be on the same page. And it's just not us going out battling the world, trying to get them to understand us versus if we invite them in and let them learn too. But anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. But one thing that Howard did in archaeology, like we were excavating Buffalo soldiers. Buffalo soldiers were um, what they called Negro units back um, after the Civil War, where they were um, manifest destiny. Um, the U.S. was pushing west and killing all the natives. And also a lot of the white soldiers were being killed by the natives. And so when um, the enslaved African was emancipated, they were like, oh, shoot, yeah, let's send the black man out to go get killed. So they started enlisting them and sending them out to kill the Apache were the most like formidable <laughs> ones historically that everybody remembers just slaying. Um, so when the Buffalo soldiers arrived, the Apache knew they were the enemy because they were wearing the uniform of the enemy, but they didn't look like the white man that they were fighting. And um, they, when they would corner them, they would fight to the death. They wouldn't surrender. So, so the black soldiers wouldn't surrender. They would just fight to the death. And it reminded the Apache, they respected that. And they reminded the Apache of the revered buffalo, when, um, which is a sacred animal. And when they would surround it, it wouldn't just surrender, it would fight to the death. And the, um, the black soldiers had the woolly hair at the top, just like the buffalo. So it was the Apache that actually named the Buffalo soldiers. So knowing that history, we didn't just go out as um, black archeologists and excavate solely our ancestors, Buffalo soldiers. There was a nearby Apache reservation and we took the time to invite the teenagers from the reservation to come and excavate as we taught them archaeology so that they can also excavate their ancestors because wherever there was a Buffalo Soldier camp, best believe there was an Apache camp nearby watching them, watch, making sure that they had their war plans and they wasn't going to mess with their village. So it was great coming together and teaching each other and learning from each other. And I feel like those, that is a beautiful example of how archaeology should be practiced. And, you know, it's, I don't necessarily, I don't know everybody's program, of course, but I'm pretty sure that those things aren't being thought of um, on the day-to-day. -day. And I just hope that filmmaking can inspire um, more diversity so that people can start thinking of uniting and bringing in uh, different opinions onto the archaeological site. Honestly, this episode has so many takeaways that I'm not even going to interrupt the takeaways, but I encourage you to pause the episode and figure out what takeaways you want to take away out of this. And then send it to me via DM on my Instagram at Joe underscore Franco or at not your average Joe Pods Instagram account. I'm really curious. What do you guys think were the takeaways from this episode? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Which brings me to part two of this conversation, mm-hmm. how you got into filmmaking, because it was how many years after you began your career as an archaeologist? Like a few years, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was a few years. Um, so I, I was just on one of the digs and I um, there was a film crew there and they didn't know what we were doing. They were doing a documentary, but they didn't really understand the archaeology. And so I stepped aside to help um, formulate the questions and write them out. And what I didn't realize I was doing is I was writing the script, <laughs> had no clue that that's like for doc filmmaking, the way you form the questions is the way the story will flow. And so that film went on to win all these awards. And I was like, hmm, maybe uh, because I am from Los Angeles and I've always been interested in film, uh, but I didn't, again, didn't know that could even be a major either. And I uh, decided to look into National Geographic Television and Film uh, in DC because I thought that, oh, well, that's a good starting place because if I do like film, uh, it I can, lend them my researching skills in the in the editorial and development department because you know I as an archaeologist um I had a, a national archives researchers pass I had like all you know so I did a lot of research so I was really good at that and so I kept hounding Nat Geo because they wanted um communications majors and I wasn't that and I like I sent in my resume and I didn't hear anything. And I just found a number and kept calling. And I was like, hi, yeah, this is Kelly again. Um, I know I'm not a communications major, but I can research the mess out of something. So you just put me in that research position and just let me do it. And they were like, I called the whole summer. And then finally, like, I'm, I'm not kidding, like months. And um, finally, they're like, oh, my God, just bring this girl in. And then, so... <laughs> I went in and I did the interview and I got the job and that changed my life from from there on. It's like I saw, oh, the power of storytelling. If I really want people to care about our history and to get um, interested, I could do it through storytelling. That's it's just so powerful. It's like the oldest form of influence. I mean, that's why a lot of throughout history dictators use propaganda i mean propaganda still used today um even in societies where we don't have per se dictators it's used <laughs> so hey okay, let's get us do a per, asterisk per se <laughs> in those early months of the nat geo experience what did you see that was unlike what you had experienced before like what were you actually seeing on a day-to-day basis that told you that storytelling is the way to reach the masses? I didn't learn it exactly at Nat Geo. What I did learn was the numbers it reached. And I, you know, what I worked on were like animal shows and things like that. And those were enticing, but it wasn't like, I like people's stories. I I love animals, everyone. So, (laughs) but I wanted to tell, I'm an anthropologist, anthro meaning man, you know, anthropos and then, Ology, I know this is your shit right here. Uh, you I know. know. I'll do the, I'll do the so study, like, study of man. <laughs> yes, anthropos. <laughs> so study of man um, or humans, because mm-hmm. you know we're ladies. But anyway, I-, I learned the numbers. I learned the business, and I learned that if I can manage and treat the filmmaking as a, not just creative, but as a business, because this is called show business, I can implement the influence in the stories that I want through my my own voice. Nat Geo does great docs, they do like great things, but it wasn't as precise as I wanted. Like I had had a purpose and I I wanted to tell certain stories of particularly marginalized communities um, around the world, but especially here home in the US. And so what I learned was the business side and the reach. And so that's what really inspired me to take the next step and kind of hustle on my own and produce things on my own as well and to be that bold. Like, I think there's just a world where we need to stop thinking that something is for 
boys, boys or for girls or for, for white girls, people or for black, or for black people, people or for Asian yep. people or for Spanish people. Like, I'm tired of looking at the world mm-hmm. in that way, but that is very much the narrative that we grow up we observing. Programmed. Yeah. Yeah, like, we don't even realize that it's a thing until you zoom out and have conversations like this, that, like, why is playing the alto saxophone a, a boy's job? Like, how stupid is that? That's crazy. That's... Wait, right? it's, first of all, it's sexy, so it should be a girl. <laughs> it, I think I, that's... It's sexy. It's, like, all curvy like a girl. You know what I mean? That should... If we're going to classify anything, we're going to reclass the saxophone as a girl. It's sex. Sexy sex. Sexy, 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 sexy. Oh my goodness. So, okay, so well, we get to these positions where it's like you're now filmmaking at Nat Geo, yeah. you're learning the craft, you're learning the business, which mm-hmm. I want to stress because a lot of people in creative industries or like Don't a lot of creatives learn the business. And that is the biggest problem, I think, when they just want to be creative and for like many years, I would just consider myself a business person, but I didn't mm-hmm. honor the fact I was actually a creative with the interest in business. And that's what, mm-hmm. what changed everything for me. Mm-hmm. But talk a little bit about that. Like you were in observation mode, but you weren't feeling as creative. So you, you got the knowledge and the skill and left Nat Geo. Yeah. And I got hired to direct the first dramatic series in the country of Belize. So I went back to Central America and I was the only female director invited to come and direct. They, they brought out three U.S. directors to help launch this because see, in Belize, they get all uh, U.S. programming. So they don't get to see themselves on TV. And so there at the time, there wasn't like particularly a lot of production companies. And there's one production company out there that is pioneering and wanting to launch something new. And they were doing a Creole dramatic series um, in Belizean Creole, which is, it, it's, you know, it's a English Creole. And so I was able to somewhat grasp it because girl, sometimes I was reading the script. I was like, and what, what what's happening here? Oh, they're eating breakfast. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, got it. But, uh, <laughs> but we were also like helping to train the next creatives there because um, while I was at Howard, I did get my degree in archaeology, but I stayed another year to uh, study film because um, I was also on the lacrosse team there. So I played Division One lacrosse. And so as an NCAA s- student, you're able to get an extra year paid for on scholarship. So I used that year to learn filmmaking and be at National Geographic. And that that was the year that changed everything for me. But yeah, I went to Belize and I directed. And then I came back to the U.S., and directed behind the scenes for PBS documentaries with Bill Duke. And then I went back to LA and uh, started working at Entertainment Tonight, where which was cool. Cause I got to hang out with like Prince at his house while he was doing this like private concert. Got to hang out with Mariah Carey, Nick Cannon and at, at Six Flags Magic Mountain. Got to do like this cool stuff. But I felt like I was getting away from stories of substance. So I left. And I got back to my roots where the anthropological roots where I really have a big care for children's rights and living conditions. And I went to Haiti, um, had a few friends there and started studying children's rights and living conditions and um, something called Restavik, which started off as a benevolent action. It Restavik, you know, Restavik, to to stay with the Restavik. And so R-E-S-T-A-V-E-K in Haitian Creole. And what that was, was that if a family had a child that they couldn't afford to take care of, it, it used to be that another family would take them on and that kid would just do household duties. And then that family would send them to school because school isn't free in Haiti, not even public school. You need to be able to pay for all your supplies. And so it is not a guarantee that you will ever be able to go to school. And so for a family to say they'll send your kid to school and all they have to do is like household chores and that they'll clothe them and feed them. It was a good exchange. But then there were people who started to take advantage of the system and trick people. And they ended up like stealing the kids and in some cases raping them, boys and girls and then throwing them out when they're too old and getting another one. And it became like, it it started as a good thing and then, you know, just bad people got involved. And so I started studying that, but the earthquake happened and I went back to help and I caught wind 
of this Catholic orphanage where the nun was allowing foreign men to come in and have sex with little girls. And then I started investigating it over the years and I couldn't find her ordained by anybody. She had people on her payroll, um, police on her payroll. She So it anyway, that film ended up, that's what got me into USC for my master's in cinematic arts. And so that, which you watched, Lalo's House, uh, became my thesis narrative and it won the Student Academy Award. That's what launched my career to be able to have more footing, to have platforms and a voice of my ultimate agenda to get the narrative out to inspire more kids um, from marginalized communities. So This is so wild. I mean, that movie touched me. I told you this. Like, I, I think about that movie at least once every six months. Wow. And Thank you. what I think is so powerful about it is, one, it's real. So it's a grotesque mm-hmm thing but two that you were able to like go to a new country you're not from haiti you were able to kind of plant yourself what came first you going there and just observing or the story me going there and observing i didn't go there looking for child trafficking at all see when earthquake happened i was going to haiti when people were like where in africa is that like nobody knew where haiti was in the united states of america because our geography knowledge is very limited (laughs) outside of states and even states sometimes will be like Wait, where is Idaho? (laughs) So bad. I know it's really embarrassing. The story. Yeah. The question that I'm asking is basically like for people out there who don't know that they want to be a storyteller, filmmaker, director, they are just curious and they have this sense of roots and this sense of like they want to help. They want to tell powerful stories eventually. Yeah. What do you suggest? Like what? happens when you land in a place how do you keep your eyes peeled how do you have this inkling that maybe there's something here worth investigating and then how do you turn that inkling into a film that's such a good question joe you go to film school yeah well one yeah i do believe in film school you do not have to go to film school let me make that clear you can have a career without going to film school However, I feel that the tuition that you're paying, and and I'll get back to, um, I remember we were talking about um, the the trafficking situation and the, the doctors and nurses and stuff. So come back to that. But what you're paying for when you choose to go to film school Because the thing is, like, film is film, and f-stop's an f-stop. Three-point lighting is three-point lighting. That is not going to change from film school to film school. It is what it is. But what you do gain is your network. And everything is about your network. And what I told you before, Joe, that my dad used to always say to me that your greatest resource is not money, it's people. And if you have people who love you and believe in you, you will never be poor. You will be taken care of and you will be able to go for your ideas and your dreams. So build that network. So I say film school is worth it because you're expanding your network and that's what your dollars are paying for. Don't look at it as, oh, you know, I could go on YouTube and I can learn this. Yeah, you can. But are you going to meet that person who loves sound design. You might be okay at sound design. You might be like, it's cool. I could do it all. I can, like you, Joe, I can edit. I can do this. I can do that. I can do multiple things. But boy, can you imagine if you had a team with somebody who loves sound, loves it, somebody who loves to shoot, just loves it, somebody who loves to edit, man, the projects you will turn out with that team is unheard of because the love is there. Go find those lovers and come together with your art and and build your community. And I'm telling you, no one can stop you. You have your, your team. Look at all the filmmakers out there. Quentin Tarantino works with the same folks. Seth Rogen, same folks. Look at Pixar. Same people all the time, every single movie, same folks. When you find your tribe, you stick with them. That's the reason why I signed up to to go to film school. Because I was like, I could do what I was doing for the next 10 years, 20 years, making a great Mm -hmm. living. But Mm -hmm. there was a moment where I had this scary thought, like, what if it is just me and I tell stories? Sure, but I don't tell the stories of 
depth that I want or that I know I'm capable of simply because yeah. I'm alone. And I yeah. always say, like, I want to I want to work with people who are better at what they do than I am so yes, I can do what do. I'm really good at. Girl, they make you look good. They make you look good. You surround yeah, you yourself with people. Good. You do. You it's know? an exchange. It's an exchange. All my films, I always call my editors the second director because they're fresh eyes and they see stuff that you don't. And um, my editor on Lalo's house, my ace, also my producer, he came in with fresh eyes and helped with it. I, I thought something had to be cut, this whole montage scene. Um, and he's like, nah, if you did it like da 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 And I was like, but imagine if I didn't have a team. That movie would be totally different because I was able to have friends that I trusted in my network and trusted their their talents. And they came in and because I trusted them, they felt comfortable enough to share their opinions. That's another thing. Be a collaborator that makes people feel comfortable and, and makes people feel heard because you, you want people to be able to speak up and feel like you're gonna consider what they're saying. And so, and, and then my editor um, came in and made, man, that was a team. Same with I'm Fine, thanks for asking, team. Um, same with these next two movies, it's gonna be team. And if they don't know it, they are gonna find out because I'm about team. <laughs> and I love that so much. Like that's what I, I've never considered being a director, but the first meeting that I had with the film school, the owner of the film school was there and he was like, you're a showrunner. Because I don't mm -hmm. necessarily want to do Girl. films. I want to I want to make series. And I was like, wait, yes, how do you, you know? And he was like, because you need to have the knowledge of story, of audience, of marketing, and of production. And you speak all four of those languages in and, this conversation that we had. people skills. And people skills is like the bow on top. And I love it's, working you with You have people. to, in the room, girl, when you run in a room, you have to be able to convey to those, that team of writers, your vision and to inspire them and goes back to making them feel heard. And that's what you do, Joe. You like, you sit and you are one of the best listeners I've ever, ever met. Like you want to genuinely know everything about everyone <laughs> like genuinely not this isn't like some like facade Wait, oh yeah which which you were watching uh, with joe this is this is 100 purely her she really is passionate about every single thing you see on her platform especially people like you will sit and listen to anybody anywhere and be 100 intrigued if they were the president of a country to if they were just operating a train in New York, <laughs> you want to know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I really do. I want to know. And what it I translates think is to show running. But yeah. I'm 30 years old. And just now, am I dipping my toes into this world, which I think is fascinating yeah. because I didn't ever think of this as a role. I didn't ever see anybody who I connected with in this world. Like you're one of the only people that I think of fondly that I am close to, even though it's a distant close because we see each other we're very sisters. few times. Like, yes, we're now <laughs> I think, especially with this new film journey that I'm on, I'm like, wow, mm -hmm. you're my mentor in this space. Because like we started this conversation with, there aren't enough examples of this. No. Which brings me to one of the closing thoughts of what you told me you want to build. Mm -hmm. That in the film world, just like in many other worlds, there's like a boys club. Yeah. Where men lift each other up. And you've yeah. seen that in your direct contacts. Like mm -hmm. in the USC world, you've seen that. 100%. But that doesn't necessarily exist with women. Not yet. I was about to do it, girl. So, yeah, I mean, and I'm all for it. I say lift people up and whoever's in your circle, lift them up. And, it, you know, with guys, it happens to be guys. And that's cool and all. But we work in a field that has historically been predominantly men. So it, it can't be a shocker that men lift men up <laughs> because it's just kind of how the tracks were laid, you know? And so here we are, they're on their train and we're on our little like, uh, what's that called on the... <laughs> a little like uh, a <laughs> buggy, like a donkey carriage. Yeah, on the little train track, the little thing that you push, you know, you've seen them in like the cartoons and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but we're building our path and we're going in the same direction. And so 
I'm a firm believer that it really, no matter what field you're in, my mom is an aerospace engineer and she's also one of the few women in her working in, in there just the same. And so every, every space that you look around and you see, oh, maybe, maybe I'm one of the pioneers here. <laughs> I charge you to take it upon yourself and, and you don't have to, to each his own, you know, maybe you're not that type of person, whatever it is. But if you can just take a step back and, and think about what would I have liked? What would have helped me? What would have made my journey just a little bit easier and do that for someone else? It's going to cause a ripple of positive change that you have no idea. And even if you just do it for one person, and then you charge that person to do the same. So I just had, um, so I made it a point when I got my first studio feature, I said, I have to bring an assistant. They wouldn't give me an assistant because I wanted my assistant to be either um, a woman, a, a woman of color or a woman or, um, or anybody from any other marginalized community, trans, like anybody. And I found the most amazing trans woman out of AFI, the first outwardly trans woman um, in the directing program at AFI to come and assist me on the studio feature while she's in, about to start her thesis. It was just a perfect exchange of knowledge and experience. And But they wouldn't pay for me to have an assistant on this first um, studio feature. So I dropped 12 grand to make sure that this, whoever I chose, can be there and can learn. And because that is something I wish I had. Now I've had people, I've had um, a, like a few directors um, have me come on a shadow and do things like that, but it'd be like for, you know, like a few days or maybe a week. And um, except for the HBO director training program, uh, in Puerto Rico with um, Claudia and Bridget, um, showrunners and creators, they they kept me off for a month. I was supposed to be a week and they're like, are you staying? So that they did for me what um, I'm now doing further. So I did have, but that was in TV. But in feature, I would have loved that to just be able to nuzzle up under somebody and be able to hear the conference calls, be able to hear the debates, not just be on set. Being on set is cool. What happens before you get to set? And those are can be some major challenges. Like I like um, even down to like she heard me, um, my assistant heard me having to um, really stand up to cast a authentically Haitian um, actor because in this there was a dynamic actor that came in to play this Haitian character, but she she was African-American, but uh, her parents are from the Bahamas, so but she was using a Bahamian accent. And I, she was great. I would work with her any day. She was phenomenal. However, I wanted the authenticity. There's a scene where I wanted them to speak Creole because we don't hear Haitian Creole on to, again, at working to to bring light to marginalized communities, and that was important to me. I wanted that Creole on screen. And so I had to explain, they couldn't really understand why I wouldn't choose the better actor, you know? And I was like, listen, we can't treat Black people like a monolith. Like we did the due diligence to make sure that we cast, cause our film is LGBTQ plus. So we did the due diligence to make sure that we cast authentically. We can't now drop the ball when we get to a black character and say, ah, it's the same because it's not. And and so I had to say, look, I had to put it into perspective. I said, look, let's, let's pretend we're casting for JFK, an American hero, an American president. And there is this Irish actor who is phenomenal, walks like JFK, looks like JFK, but he's doing a South African accent. And that's all he can do. He, are you gonna cast him to play the American Boston 
Massachusetts accented president of the United States because he walks and moves like him and he's a good actor? No, you're not. You're going to take the time to find the person who can be JFK. Well, and this is the thing where like you're sitting at the table and you as a director have the power to push back. But even when you have the power, it's still a push back. Yeah. And I think that reframes these roles whether it's being an archaeologist or a director you are just a champion to elevate other marginalized voices you just so yeah. happen to be doing it now in film yeah you happen to be doing it in archaeology yeah yeah and it's that needs to be more common it, it, it and we're gonna have to be the ones making it more common and it's a lot it, it's so easy to just be like okay we'll cast they're they're good they can do it and and not push back do you know how nerve-wracking it was to to say I need to talk to the the head executives <laughs> and sell them I don't agree you know and it's my first feature it's not like I have like all these like studio feature but it's not like I have all these studio it's not like I directed six Marvel films and I'm like hey guys this is what we're doing you know like I'm new they're giving me a chance and I'm sitting here telling them I don't agree with you you know, you got to have, but that's what it is when we're like pioneers and we come. And to their credit, let me say, they listened. Because see, you got to also remember, everyone's not out to be, you know, exclusive and not consider people's feelings. Oftentimes, they're not doing it on purpose. They don't even know. And you might be the first person bringing it up. They might not even recognize that they're treating people as a monolith. And when, and so to the credit of my executives, because my executives were shit, they are, their intentions are great. They are just, oh, I love them to pieces. They listen, again, when you're a leader, being a good listener, they listened and they gave me the time to find the right actor. And I did. And, and those things matter. So when you get into these power positions, especially as women, women of color, women, period, really, you need to, I hate to tell people what they need to do, but it would be very helpful to the greater good of all <laughs> if you <laughs> could reach back and bring others up and let them watch. And so what to tell, I was telling that story because my assistant, had to go back to AFI and um, do her thesis. And there, she has to do the same thing now. She has to actually push to get trans characters in the story and and has to defend why that's relevant and why that is her, her voice and who she is and all those things. But it helped her to realize she's not alone, to sit and watch these things. So it was worth me spending the 12 grand to me to bring somebody so that they can have that experience. And then I charged her with the responsibility that when she gets her first opportunity, she will do the same for someone else. And I feel that that's how we then become like the boys club and we pull each other up. And, you know, I'm trying to infiltrate the boys club and let them know like, hey, y'all, you know, you bring us all in. We're going to be a, a boss group of people. <laughs> and again, a lot of them don't even realize they're like they're doing that. I think they're just bringing right. up their friends, you know? Well, it's like very unconscious. Mm -hmm. You connect to the people who look like you, yeah. just primitively, tribally. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense. But this is also why I talk about like diversity in your friend groups, like having mm -hmm. best friends, like real best friends who come from completely different, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Like one of my best friends comes from this family that I could never even imagine. Like I used to clean houses that look like hers, but it's because of her that I got into financial literacy because she told me like, Joe, here's what investment is. Here's what, here are an app, mm -hmm. you know, here are apps you can download. If I were only friends with immigrants, people of color, like that maybe would have not happened in my yeah, life. You wouldn't have gotten that information per se, like not, maybe not at that time. You not know? as early as I did. Like mm -hmm. now I have 10 years of investing experience, not because of anyone else other than the fact that I, and I had to sleep on her couch because I was so broke out of college. And she just like randomly was like, live on my couch. And, and this That's blossomed beautiful. a beautiful friendship. 
but yeah, I think the whole overarching theme is diversity. It's like diversity, inclusion, making sure that the voices are being heard and knowing yeah. that it's not malicious if people aren't including you. It's just unconscious. But yeah. as these people, we have to be the ones to pioneer and bring it mm-hmm. up. Yeah, I truly believe that. I don't think, I, I mean, I'm, cer- I'm certain there's some conscious ones out there <laughs> just <laughs> throughout there are, history, sure. throughout history. Yeah, but I, but for the most part, I think today a lot of those groups that we see, I don't, I don't think Seth Rogen is conscious. I think those are just his boys, you know? <laughs> I don't think Seth Rogen is like, how can I be exclusionary? Like, I don't think that at all. I think he's like, this is who I came up with. These are my people. And um, and that's what it is. And who, who knows who else he's brought up? I don't know his whole clique. <laughs> so. so after all of this, there's so many great takeaways, but I always wrap up the interviews with this question. If you mm-hmm. could give anyone out there a piece of advice that they could take today to be less of an average Joe, yeah, what would that be? Oh my God, invest in yourself. It's worth it. Don't be afraid to take out that loan. If you couldn't get the scholarship, do not be scared. You are worth every dollar. And it's unfortunate that, you know, well, at least in the US, some countries have a better system, but you know, we we have to pay so much for education, but don't let that deter you. Do not let that have you sitting at home and choosing average things. (laughs) No offense to that. But if you have a pat, here's the thing. It's not about average and and not average because that's all um, that's all perspective. Right. So it's about passion. Knowing what you're passionate about, knowing what you what makes you happy, what makes gets those butterflies in your stomach when you think about it, no matter how crazy it is no matter that no one in your family has done it before, no matter that no one in your community has done it before, no matter that nobody has done it before, (laughs) there's something placed in you to do it. Those butterflies aren't there for no reason. There's, I am a firm believer that we all have purpose and, and we know it from a young child. It's either we bury it because we're told that's not something that can be done or that that's not a real career or that's not whatever, not, 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 not. And I want you to put all those knots away and say yes to yourself and invest. Invest with time, invest with money, even if you have to take out student loans. Um, and don't, please don't worry about it because worry brings on more issues. <laughs> Do not be happy about it. If you can practice being grateful for the ability to take out a loan, being grateful for being accepted into that program that you want it, that you want to learn in, focus on all the good. And I'm telling you, you won't have to worry about any of that other stuff. And I know that that's a lot of reprogramming because we're taught to worry. But if you can make it an exercise to know that you are more important and that your life's journey is more important and taking those leaps and taking those risks is more important and listening to those little butterflies is the most important thing that you can do in your life because when you look back because you're going time's going to go on you're going to end up you're going to be 65 and you're going to either have done it or not done it but you're going to be 65 lord willing we we pray <laughs> and older but let do it. And I know people have heard this before, but you have to. It's your it's it's your purpose, it's your obligation to all of us. What you do living your life's purpose affects us. And I want to be happy. So you go be happy so that the rest of us can be happy and we can be one big happy family. So I need you to just go do it. Follow the butterflies. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Say no more. Thank you, Kelly. You of are course, my, my sister mentor. You're my sister. 
wow she preaching today <laughs> thank you so much for listening thank you to kelly for just being such a wise brilliant woman she made me want to consider being an archaeologist wow any archaeologists out there listening but i think it also goes to show you that you can start in one thing and then just naturally progress to wherever you're supposed to be and if your root stays the same and in her case it was like telling powerful stories telling purposeful stories that can only be elevated through filmmaking i'll be back next week with another episode if you enjoy this episode or find it valuable in any way please share it with a friend and don't forget to rate it on apple Podcasts or on spotify i'm trying to get to like a thousand five-star reviews that's all i want i just want a thousand we're at 400 now so i think we're almost there i mean once you get halfway you're halfway there right uh so don't forget to leave me a review and i appreciate you so much and also big news i created a not your average joe podcast youtube channel so that i could post all of the visual episodes there so subscribe it's in the show notes i haven't put anything up there yet but the system will be visual episode audio episode and it'll all live on one youtube channel so you don't have to dig through the joe franco youtube channel which will be reserved for my film school projects that will double as youtube videos And I can't wait uh, for what's to come next. Don't forget, have an above average week because you deserve it. And I'll see you soon. Hey, yo, come listen to my girl, man. What you doing? Shit. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.